how the magazine business is winning. That's right, winning. And introducing your new favorite TV network, Facebook. This is episode 38 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom A. Sacker. Tom, how the magazine business is winning. That's right. I said winning. What in the world am I talking about? I don't know. Tell us what you're talking about. There's a story from Folio, and it's titled The Untold Story of How Magazine Media is Winning. It's almost unbelievable on its face, but here we go. It turns out there was this organization called the American Magazine Conference. And it turns out that organization no longer exists. It's now called the American Magazine Media Conference. I noticed an extra word in there, Tom. They threw that in. Maybe we should throw magazine into the name of our show. (laughs) Magazine Media Unplugged. Magazine Media Unplugged. That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Unopened. Magazine Media Unopened. No, so here's was. what the piece says. It says it's not the quote-unquote magazine industry anymore, and this is a theme we see a lot. It's an industry of powerful brands that all have a print magazine component. The print magazine is no longer the hub of the wheel, but it remains an important point of engagement with audiences and an ad vehicle that produces resilient revenue. The business itself evolved from a hub-and-spoke model with the magazine in the middle of the wheel to, the, to a model with the consumer at the hub, and the magazine just one of the spokes but a spoke that completes the wheel. I love that last sentence the most. It's like, but it's spokes that completes the wheel. Well, it has <laughs> to. I mean, guess who, look who's writing it. But look, putting the customer <laughs> at the hub of the business model, taking an outside in view of what you do as a business, mm-hmm. it's the key to, to innovation, relevance, you know, and thus brand strength in, in all categories, not just media. But, you know, media businesses have far fewer barriers to competitive entry. We've talked about this over and over again. Mm -hmm. So this is even more important for them to understand because as the article rightly points out, no one is really sure what business model is coming next. No, what, what they are sure of is that it'll probably be a combination of business models. This piece goes on to say, Uh, compare 2004 to 2014 revenue sources. And for 2014, it says for brands that exceeded 5 million in revenue, print accounted for, and we're talking about magazine brands here, print accounted for 46.6% of revenue with subscriptions, another 5% for slightly more than half the total. Nearly 20% came from digital, another 11% classified under data and marketing services, which is generally also digital, and then 16% from events, in other words, the magazine business is no longer the magazine business. Yeah. Well, look, the media business in all categories is no longer what the category <laughs> is, right? But I tell you, and it's really smart what they're doing. And it, they're probably doing it just, you know, they're out there just kind of, uh, I don't want to say winging it, but trying things to see what sticks. But I would take that hub model one additional step, and it's this. I wouldn't just place the consumer in the middle and then branch out from there. I would put the Mm -hmm. consumer and the marketers who are interested in speaking and engaging with those consumers, I would connect those two people in the middle, and then I would figure out how to innovate and add value, you know, with, with all of the parties. So consumers to consumers, marketers to consumers, marketers to marketers. 
And then you can use those little spokes, data, digital, events, video, mobile, print, celebrity, licensing, whatever is going to engage people and create value for all parties. That is the name of the game. Okay, well, now I'm going to lay on you how I think this model is kind of wrong and and what I think they're really trying to say without actually saying it. Because I get the idea of the consumer at the hub and certainly not the print magazine at the hub. It's another way of saying we're not about the distribution channel. We're about the people at the end of the distribution channel, the consumers, which, you know, who can argue with that? But here's the problem I had with it. The, the idea of consumers at the hub with all these various distribution spokes is an idea that can exist with outside the presence of the brand. You do not need this brand, any media brand, for this to happen, any, any particular media brand. You could substitute this same hub-and-spoke picture for Facebook, for YouTube, for Google, and it would all be the same. You don't need the Meredith brands. You don't need the Hearst brands. Um, and they kind of hint at this later in the piece when they say, um, uh, they use examples. Martha Stewart and Rachel Ray have built highly successful licensed products for their brands along with extensions including broadcast, television, radio, and digital media. Now, what's at the hub of those uh, wheels? The answer is Martha Stewart and Rachel Ray. The answer is not the consumer. The answer is Martha Stewart and Rachel Ray. In other words, the brand, I, as I'm reading this, my sense of it is they're getting this wrong and the brand is actually at the center well, it of the wheel. It depends because look, Let's assume that what you're saying is correct and that Martha Stewart is a reason that these consumers are connecting with, you know, with her, that brand, and, mm -hmm. and everything that she provides of value, right? Whether it's, mm -hmm. uh, okay. Now, let's say that you're a, a big media company and you go out and you get Martha Stewart exclusively. Mm -hmm. And now she's a spoke on the hub of that wheel, because now you've got Martha Stewart and maybe you get someone else that's a little bit different that appeals to those consumers. So, so the right. idea is, what is, it, what is it in the category that consumers are really attracted to? Are they, are they attracted to high-end <laughs> architectural design? Yeah, good. Then let's see if we can create spokes around all of that including a magazine, including a celebrity designer, including an event, and, and we'll have the consumer be in the center, and we'll just keep adding spokes to it in order to tighten that bond. Okay, now what you're saying is it depends on where you stand relative to the wheel, because if I'm Martha Stewart, my deal with, you know, insert whatever, um, um, uh, I don't know, Target, my deal with Target is a licensing deal. So for me, Martha Stewart, I'm at the center of the wheel and Target is a spoke on my wheel. <laughs> no, you're absolutely, listen, you're, you're absolutely right. That, that's, that is what is, that's the competition that, that, that exists today, which is how do we engage and keep these people engaged around mm -hmm. something that we have some control over so that we're the one managing <laughs> the direction that the wheel goes down the road. I mean, if you want to keep stretching these metaphors all over the place. Do you know what I mean? I do. <laughs> I, I think that to me the most, and you can tell this is clearly written from the magazine company's standpoint, but 
the most interesting piece, the element of this is where they kind of reframed the travails of the magazine <laughs> industry as a natural form of evolution towards, you know, uh, towards towards the rising dawn off on the horizon when they said, what if Kerry was simply stating the truth, that what Hearst is experiencing is the norm? What if the business formerly known as the magazine industry has already turned the corner and the shutdowns and layoffs, as painful as they are, are the consequence of innovation and change, not the desperate actions of a dying business? What if the industry is doing things now that the digital-only players can't and has the content creation and marketing skill sets that Google and Facebook can't replicate. Well, then what you're witnessing is just an industry that's getting healthier. You know, it reminds me of that, <laughs> of that scene in, uh, I think it's of, of the fly or the fly too, the Cronenberg one, when they say, uh, Alex, you're getting worse, you know, as he's becoming the fly. Right. And he says, I'm getting better. <laughs> Yeah. Listen, everything is, is from somebody else's perspective. I'm sure the foot thinks that it created the leg, you know, if, if it could talk. It, that's just the, it's just the way it goes. It, it's funny. It, it, the funniest part about this, though, is, is that, you know, they, they were talking about it's not a magazine industry anymore. It's an industry of powerful brands that all have a print magazine component. Okay. Right. Now, what's funny about that to me is that, you know, people experience something like the Internet. And then they start predicting the end of this and the end of that. And it's typically because of uh, some kind of economics, right? And they, they, they look at it and they say, oh, okay, we can get all of this this way. And it's a lot easier, cheaper, faster. Mm -hmm. So all this other stuff's going to die. But people aren't like that. People aren't, quote, unquote, predictably rational. They, they, they don't follow these uh, economic models. Look at conferences and conventions. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that blow your mind? Like, why? Are, why shouldn't they be declining? Why is everybody spending time and money traveling all over the country when they mm -hmm. could just simply hop online and sit at their desks and connect with people? Mm -hmm. Because that's what they're doing all day long anyway. So they <laughs> desire something. They desire some real human interaction. So all of this stuff is going to shift. And it's, that's the thing about the marketplace. What people don't understand about it is they go out there and they think they fulfilled this desire and then they say okay we got it but what they don't understand is that those desires are constantly shifting based on anything new coming into the marketplace right and that's right. what people miss it's like oh, okay we're shipping this stuff on time now oh no wait a minute amazon shipping you know in a day uh-oh you know, the, the rational thing is so funny. When I was in uh, business school, they had a very quantitative approach, and they had an acronym, and it was called REM. Rational Evaluating Maximizing Man is what it was called. And that was the premise of every, it was the first thing you learned. You have to assume rational evaluating maximizing man. And people would say, well, but what if people aren't behaving rationally? Then the professor would say, well, but, but then you can't make any predictions. <laughs> Hey, you so, know what? The guy is so right. So you have to assume it. So, but, but, and everyone said, oh, well, okay then. No, instead they should have said, well, wait a minute. What do you, why don't I just take my tuition and run now? <laughs> no, I know. Listen, I told you I've got an economics and a business degree. And my economics professor told me when I was getting my diploma, if, oh, congratulations. I said, why? He said, because if you can teach a parrot to say supply and demand, you now have an economist. <laughs> you know, like I wanted all my money back then. You are listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Ayesacker, economist Tom Ayesacker, and Mark <laughs> Ramsey, who's got no degree good for anything. 
Tom, Facebook tweaks algorithm to prize live video. We reportedly pay celebs to broadcast regularly. Mm-hmm. That's from Tube Filter. Um, this was so interesting because it relates to our previous topic in part because the previous topic kind of rested on the notion that it's media brands like magazine brands that have the ability to create content, whereas you don't find that with Facebook and uh, Google because they're just curating stuff and they're just dropping ads right, in other people's exactly. content, right? <laughs> here, all of a sudden, whoops, what are we talking about here? Facebook is tweaking an algorithm so that the network's roughly 1.6 billion users, is that all, will soon see a lot more live streaming video. Facebook Live Video has become increasingly popular over the past few months, writes their project manager. Therefore, the company is, quote, making a small update to newsfeed. So the Facebook Live videos are more likely to to appear higher in newsfeed when those videos are actually live compared to after they are no longer live, which is another interesting (laughs) distinction, right? Well, Facebook is they're trying to make the live videos more live. I, I just more love. live. Yeah, it's not live recorded. It's live live, right? Um, Facebook has previously said what would seem rather obvious. Users spend three times. I don't. I'm not so sure that seems obvious, but users spend three times more time watching a live video that's actually live as opposed to one that's been archived on a user's timeline. Now, Tom, what do you call a platform <laughs> that features linear real time? live video and pays stars to perform on that platform. Wow, it sounds like TV to me, but I It mean. sure sounds like TV. <laughs> what was your take on this? Well, this this is really interesting. I'll tell you why. I mean, everyone listening has, has heard the expression, it takes money to make money. And I'm not talking about, uh, you know, upfront costs to launch a startup. I'm talking about the real money required to grow a media business. Mm-hmm. Well, now we've got a front seat on the action, right? Everybody should pay attention. I glanced at Facebook's year-end balance sheet and just to see what was going on with their cash. They had cash and short-term investments in the neighborhood of $18.5 billion, mm. all right? So that's how they could just take $4 billion and buy WhatsApp. Okay, give us here, give right. us that, and we'll give you some stocks. So they know that video is the you know, end point. In, in this evolving digital evolution of media. Yes, mm-hmm. engaging people started with print, right? I remember blogging. I mean, <laughs> then, we went, yep, then yep. we went to images with Pinterest and Snapchat. And then... Oh, don't forget, you skipped microblogging. You've got to... Yeah, micro Twitter blog. came before okay, that, right? Microblogging. Yeah, that's right. I did forget about that. I, I guess I'm glad I did. And then, <laughs> you know, then we got YouTube, right? And then live mm-hmm. video, Whatever most effectively stimulates the human mind and the senses. Oh, and guess what's on the horizon? Virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Facebook owns Oculus, right? The leader in virtual mm-hmm. reality technology. So in the past, Mark, and this is how I look at this and why this is a big deal. With the digital environment, it used to be the lure of eyeballs and attention that would draw talent in. Oh, we've got all these eyeballs. Come do some things here, you know, f- for nothing. <laughs> exposure. Do it mm-hmm. for exposure. Even though exposure, can, you can die with too much exposure. Everybody said, okay, I'll do it. Now you've got all these competing platforms with all these eyeballs. They're saying, come on in. We've got eyeballs and attention. And you know what these talented people are saying? Uh-uh. <laughs> no. Uh-uh. No, we want, you know, we want bank, Benjamins, big ones, you know? Right. Or you want the internet parlance monetization, baby. 
So that's what's going to happen. The people who can now buy talent are going to have mm -hmm. a huge edge over the people who can't. Right. And that's going to uh, further in increase their advantage. And that's going to put that, that, again, that's going to redefine what we call social media as uh, live television and not just the kind of live television you can see because you've got a live button on your own Facebook app, but the kind that comes from people who are, as they put it, the people they're pursuing. They're reportedly interested in traditional Hollywood stars, comedians, and digital influencers. Yep. I mean, th those are... <laughs> yeah, but what are they paying them, Mark? What did they say they were going to offer them? Like, just for... They said... They said uh, six-figure sums. There you go. By the way, six-figure sums get you to the table, right? It doesn't make the deal. <laughs> oh, no, I know. But, but the fact that they can just reach into their pocket and say, hey, here's a few hundred grand plus attention, that makes a difference. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. I mean, it used to be just the, the attention. Look, don't you want to be in the middle of this incredible $1.6 billion you know, uh, uh, mass of humanity That's called right. Facebook. That's right. Yes, I do, because I'm a vain star and I want to stay in the limelight. I want to be relevant to today's audiences, et cetera. Now, as you say, it's not good enough. Now they actually have to pay them. But at the same time, these stars recognize that they have a value, that uh, Facebook wants to get this thing off the ground. Damn. And to get it off the ground, they're going to have to pay these people to use it. That's it. And then once they pay these people to use it, they will forever have to pay these people and people like them to use it, right? This is not an opening, an opening act. This is the way the game's going to be played here on out. They correct? don't care. They don't care. Th that will create, that'll create a barrier. Of course not. And this answers the question like, well, you know, traditional television, over the top, uh, et cetera. Well, wait a minute. Facebook just circumvented all that, did they not? Exactly. If the star of your favorite TV show is now broadcasting live on Facebook, who's to say that's not more entertaining than the TV show that you script for that star? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They don't have to run their ideas through this committee anymore. That's right. Now the star gets to be as vain as they want. Exactly. With That's no perfect. governors on them. It's awesome. <laughs> it is perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Yep. Keep, keep an eye All on right, it. You, now it's time, Tom, for Rants and Raves. What do you have in queue this week? It's funny because you kind of, you kind of led into it when, you know, now the, now the stars can do whatever they want because my rave today is for one of those stars. It's for... Tina Fey, because mm. she recently disclosed a secret in a Town & Country magazine interview, and it's a secret that everyone in the world desperately wants to know. It's, how do I live forever? <laughs> and, and, you know what, and you know what she said? You want to know, according to Tina, what the answer is? Are you ready? Tell me, yes. Stay away from the internet. Stay away. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> this is what she said. So, that horse has left the barn. Yeah, so she's so she's like the rare celebrity with no Twitter account. She doesn't have much of a Facebook presence. And and I'm going to tell you, I think she's absolutely right, at least when mm -hmm. it comes to how to live forever in the hearts and minds of an audience. Because you can't be online all day. You have to hustle. You have to create. You can't give a shit about what you're seeing online or what everyone else is telling you. <laughs> At least not in the outset when you're working on creating your art, your whatever your idea is. Mm -hmm. So to me, she's a paragon of what it takes to succeed in, in this kind of crazy, hyper-competitive marketplace. She has a punishing work ethic. She's mm -hmm. a savvy strategist. She tries new things all the time. And she's, she's authentic. She's bold. 
I mean, she writes for herself. She doesn't write for a particular political ideology or for the politically correct. And so everyone listening, ignore everyone and start <laughs> creating. All four of you people, create something that you want to experience, something that turns you on or solves your problems. And if you steer clear of the internet, you may just live forever. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm trying to I'm trying to understand how that shroud of secrecy plays in a world of where people just can't get enough transparency. You know, people just people can't be I mean, your last week you went from Kanye last time to Tina Fey this time, which couldn't be more polar opposites, right? I know, isn't that funny? And I didn't even try to do that. It just happened. That's amazing. Well, I've got, I'm not sure whether this is a rant or a rave. I'm kind of undecided this week. This is something you will have heard about. Did you see the Oscars by any chance? I watched some of it. Well, um, you may be familiar with uh, how Chris Rock turned Girl Scout cookies into what Adweek calls Oscar's biggest brand winner. Did you see any of that? I did see what he did, yeah. I, I, enjoyed, yeah. I enjoyed his entire performance, personally. I thought he did a Well, good. this isn't about his entire performance. <laughs> this is about that aspect of his entire performance, which, you know, shames all the traditional advertisers who pay $2 million for 30 <laughs> seconds of airtime um, because the conclusion of Adweek is that this tactic with the Girl Scouts trumped them all. Okay, well, what did he do? About half an hour into the ceremony, Chris Rock explained that because of his Oscar hosting duties, quote, I've been away from my two daughters at a very important time in their life. I've missed most of the Girl Scout cookie season. After explaining uh, that his younger daughter lamented coming in second during her troop's cookie sales, he <laughs> told the audience, I want you to reach into your millionaire pockets. I want you to buy some of my daughter's Girl Scout cookies. And at that, Girl Scouts fanned out across the Dolby Theater. And apparently, they made just a ton of money uh, from uh, selling Girl Scout cookies. Um, they also have made one final appearance during the closing moments of the ceremony, where Rock mentioned Girl Scouts one more time, while Morgan Freeman, who had just presented the best picture to Spotlight, and Michael Keaton, who starred in it, sampled a box of Thin Mints he had on stage. <laughs> social media went wild. You know, the Girl Scout uh, social media team was on the ball. Uh, and apparently, let's see, I'm trying to see how much uh, money they made. It was, um, uh, gosh, it was $65,000 they made from the people in the room <laughs> at this thing. And they've got pictures all over the place with Christian Bale eating Thin Mints. And it's just amazing. And what um, Adweek goes on to say is that, uh, let's see, the organization's Oscar appearance resulted in 49,000 tweets around Girl Scout cookies between 8.30 p.m. and, and 12.30 a.m. Eastern. And Girl Scout cookies had more Oscar-related digital content engagement than other brands that advertised on the show, paying between $1.9 and $2 million for each 30-second ad, according to data from uh, one of their trusted sources. So, in other words, all you advertisers are chumps... <laughs> And by the way, they said this wasn't <laughs> brand integration in the tra traditional sense. This was supposedly Chris Rock's idea. Uh, he went and flew it up the fag flagpole, and everyone said yes. Um, this No money changed hands other than the money in the pockets of the Girl Scouts here. And I was just thinking about this, Tom. I was thinking, okay, well, this may not be brand integration of the kind we professionally call brand integration, but it is unquestionably brand integration, right? Because here is Adweek calling uh, one brand the biggest winner of the night. And that is the one brand that spent zero on advertising. <laughs> now, if that's not integration, I don't know what is. 
Oh, it's integration. What does this tell you, though? I mean, to, to me, this says that if you can find a way to circumvent the ads, to be part of the content, to own the content, to control the content, to overtake the content, um, whether you pay for that integration or not, you are the brand winner. And it becomes about everything except the ads. Well, I mean, the same thing happens online when, um, you know, when you see an ad that runs that taps into the the emotions and the platform of a celebrity. And, that, and then that celebrity takes the YouTube video and puts it on their Facebook page and shows millions of followers. Um, you know, th- th- this happens, this happens a lot. Now, what you don't know and what I don't know is did the Girl Scouts have anything to do with this? Well, <laughs> believe I me, I am highly suspicious of this whole thing. Here we go I again. Think the idea, <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, no, I am. I mean, I, the idea that money didn't, uh, that the Oscars weren't paid to do this. Okay. That I could kind of accept, but I have to believe that somewhere down the line, you know, Chris Rock's going to be wearing a green sash one of these days. You know how come he said, something? Why like did that. he tell Harvey Weinstein to kiss his ass? He didn't get. He didn't buy any cookies. Well, look at Harvey. He doesn't need any cookies. <laughs> That's media unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. You can also catch us at SoundCloud, Podcast One, Radio Inc., Media Village, Net News Check, and the fabulous American Marketing Association. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. Maybe we'll even cover it. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the Uber producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio from media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you so much for listening.